everyone. It's great to see all of you today on this marvelous Lord's Day. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please. Once again, we're going to... I'm actually taking a little bit of a step back from the book of Romans. Um, Turn your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29. Just be reading one verse today. One verse. Jeremiah 23, verse 29, which reads, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we are humbled to be called your children. Lord, we thank you for the precious blood of Christ. The divine, holy, righteous, perfect blood of your Son that makes us acceptable in your sight. Lord, I would ask today that you would would help me, Lord. Help me to preach your word. For your glory alone. I pray, Father, for the church, the body of Christ here, Lord God, that you would give them ears to hear. You would open their hearts that they'd be able to receive the word of God. Lord, we stand here amazed, utterly amazed and fascinated at your glory. Make yourself known to each and every one of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. On April 18th, 1521, Martin Luther stood before the Council of Worms, exhausted and tired from all-night prayer. But he was fueled by truth and an inescapable fire raging from within. Luther, it was said, stood there as one chiseled out of granite. And like the martyr Stephen with his face beaming like that of an angel, his eyes were fixed upon his opponents. With his trust in Christ, who Christ himself promises his servants, when he says in Luke 21, 15, he says, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all of your adversaries will not be able to withstand or contradict. The grimacing glares of the pomp and pride of Rome severely wanted this heretic burned, along with all of his troubling doctrines and his theology as well. Rome would not be mocked. The Holy Roman Empire and all of her pomp began to address this rebellious monk. 25 books were laid before him on a table, probably including the 95 theses 
resolutions concerning the 95 Theses, on the papacy at Rome, addresses to the Christian nobility, the Babylonian captivity of the church, and on the freedom of a Christian. He was asked two questions, given both in German and in Latin. The first question was, are these books yours? The second question is, will you recant them? This whole situation was started and fueled by another act of rebellion on Luther's part. It was said that Luther walked a half a mile from his home to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg on the 31st of October, 1517, and he was angry. It was indeed hammer time for Luther. He was about to nail a list of challenges, or as, or as they had become to be known as his 95 Theses against the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church to the church door, which served as the bulletin board in this small town. Martin Luther nailed this death warrant to the cathedral door in Wittenberg, and within two weeks, copies of these had spread throughout Germany. Within two months, they had spread throughout all of Europe. Other words in our language today, it went viral. Thanks to the Gutenberg Press. Which brings us to our... Back to Jeremiah in verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 10, where it says, See, I have appointed you today over the nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down to destroy and overthrow but we always know in God's message there's always grace because he says and to build and to plant Luther added in his works were proven he said this if his works were proven to be false by scripture then he himself would burn his own books he was then asked to give a straight answer would he recant or would he stand for truth. There it seemed like all of Europe stood weighed in the balance. Luther said, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. What stirred Luther to take action? Basically the very same thing that stirred Jeremiah to action. And this was a perversion of truth and an assault upon the word of God. Luther said righteousness based on works and the righteousness given to us by God should never be confused or mixed. In Jeremiah 23, 29, the Bible says, It's not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Jeremiah challenged his nation, a nation that was supposed to be the light to all the surrounding nations, but instead they became 
like all the other nations. They went after what the Bible says, other lovers. All idolatries basically can be boiled down to one thing. A perversion of the truth, lies about God, and deception. Brothers and sisters, America is ripe for another reformation. It's ripe for another reformation. As Luther stood in the balance, so we stand in the balance. This nation stands in the balance. The corruption, the deception, the things that are going on. The false, artificial, Americanized church. Where much of it claims to be Christian, but it's not. Which is pretty much antagonistic against the gospel itself, against truth itself. But when so many, instead of standing up, said, I'm a stand on the truth, I can do no other, even at the expense of my ministry, even at the expense of my family, even at the expense of my church, maybe at the expense of my own life, I cannot be turned. I cannot be swayed. But today it seems like many are swayed. Many are turned. Many have sold out. I'm not saying everybody's sold out except us. But what I'm saying is that there's a majority in this country that could really care less about God's word and still carry on the name of Christian. Which is scary because so many have run after other lovers and after the lover of our soul. And that is the Lord Christ himself. You see, Jeremiah didn't need some fancy philosophy of intimidation. He had the hammer of God. Abraham Hishel, in his book on the prophets, writes this. He says, the prophets had no theory or idea of God. What they had was an understanding. And their God understanding was not the result of a theoretical inquiry, of a groping in the midst of alternatives about the being and attributes of God. To the prophets, God was overwhelmingly real and shatteringly present. They never spoke of him as from a distance. They, they lived as witnesses struck by the words of God rather than explorers engaged in an effort to ascertain the nature of God. Their utterances were the unloading of a burden rather than a glimpse obtained in the fog of groping. Jeremiah had... You know, the word of God, the hammer of God, and the fire of the Holy Spirit. We must ask ourselves this question as even the days of Jeremiah, when looking and reading through uh, the life and story and drama of the book of Jeremiah, we can't help but to see parallels in our own country and how God deals with a nation and how God deals with a culture that completely abandons his covenant and continually violates his law. Many of us stand as a clenched fist in the very face of God. And this is the way it was in the days of Jeremiah. Jeremiah obviously wasn't looking for a ministry. He wasn't looking for an opportunity to preach. He was called by God at a very young age. 
And not only that, God invested within this man the very pathos and emotions of God himself. Jeremiah literally felt the very pathos of God, the very feelings of God against a nation that was violating the very laws of God, a very nation in whom God himself had called to himself. Now we're living in continual rebellion towards God. They have changed the true, pure worship of the Lord into paganism and idolatry. You know, we, we look at the, the, the massive murdering of the unborn in our day, and we think, wow, you know, it's just, obviously, it's, it's insane. But the reality was just as insane back then. Even at the very time of Jeremiah's existence, even his ministry was to confront these issues of his day as well. The temple of God, you could have the, the temple, you could have the temple worshipers in there, but at the same time, the people that would call themselves the people of God were out slaughtering babies, offering up their babies to the God of Baal. All and all these other types of sacrifices and all these modes of worship were a complete contradiction of what God commands in Scripture. Francis Schaeffer comments, we do not have to guess what God would say. About this, because there was a period of history, biblical history, which greatly parallels our day. And he says this was the days of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations shows how God looks at a culture which knew him and deliberately turned away. But this is not just a character in Jeremiah's day of apostasy, it's my day, it's your day. And if we're going to help our generation, our perspective must be that. Of Jeremiah's. That weeping prophet who Rembrandt so magnificently pictured weeping over Jerusalem, who in the midst of his tears spoke without mitigating his message of judgment to a people who had had so much, had so much, and yet turned away. In Jeremiah 23, verse 9, Jeremiah cried out. He said, my heart within me is broken because of, the, because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man whom wine hath overcome because of the Lord and because of the words of his holiness. For he says in verse 10, for the land is full of adulterers. adulterers. For because of swearing, the land mourneth. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up and their course is evil and their force is not right. Jeremiah's ministry, his place of ministry covered many fronts. He did not need 20 different messages to deal with the pervading issues of his day. He had the words of Almighty God. He too, like, the, like Paul in Athens, was crowded in on every side with idols. The city of God was turned into mockery and filth. And these are these are the, the days in which Jeremiah was raised up. It was just a preliminary before Israel was taken into captivity, into Babylonian captivity. It was just before the judgment of God was coming to strike this nation down. The wrath of God was coming. And Jeremiah didn't have a pretty message for the people. He had a message of judgment. He had a message which many of us would say is very negative. A message of negativity. 
and letting people know that God's wrath, God's judgment, we are a nation under the judgment of God. Without trying to sound like a doom and gloom preacher up here, I would definitely say that we too in this country are under the wrath of God. We're under the judgment of God. Many of the things that we see happening around us and happening to us, I think is in direct correlation with our lack of biblical repentance towards the sins that we know we've committed against God. See, we've taken on a spirit of accommodation. We accommodate it instead of confront it, and that's where it gets dangerous. Many of us are afraid to, to take a stand because it may cost us your job. It may cost you your friends. It may cost you your marriage. It may. It may cost you everything. But Jesus said, all those who will come after me must take up their cross. In other words, you must die. As Bonhoeffer said, Jesus bids us to come and die. That's the Christian life, is that Christ bids us to come and die. Die to ourselves, die to our reputation, die to our life and take upon what? A better, better life? No, a crucified life. We take upon his life. Yes, the Bible says his yoke is easy, but the reality is this world around us is not easy. But this is the command of a true believer. We're to live this way you know, in, 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 a, in a culture that is crumbling all around us. Jeremiah said in chapter 17, verse 5, he says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departed from the Lord. Reminds me of what Jonah said in chapter 2, verse 8. He said, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. See, at this time, the supposed people of God were nothing more than pretending hypocrites. Jeremiah was angry, indignant, crushed, disturbed, and dismayed at the condition of God's people. And as Jonah, he had one message, and it was a fiery message of repentance. Jeremiah's retaliation and denunciations first began with the priest. That's where he started. He started with, with you know, a lot of times you look around at our nation, you see the problems that exist and just a, the, just a gross sin, Right? And you think that's a great place to start. That's a great place to start. In reality, it's never where God starts. God starts with the house of God first. Judgment always comes to the house of God because it's the remedy. This is why we're here. Why do you think the church of Christ is still here on this planet? What do you think we're here for? What is the body of believers, the body of Christ? What, why are we existing on this earth? To be salt. To bring healing, to be light into what light only shines in dark places. We're here because we have been given what? The most precious thing of all. We've been given Christ, but we've been given the mandate to proclaim Christ to lost people. We basically hold the keys for people to come out of the jaws of hell and into life abundantly. Imagine that for one moment. The minority of God's people have the remedy to a human being who's on the verge and precipice of splitting hell wide open. And there you stand with the words of life. 
and the mandate that God would look down upon us and in his grace and mercy would not only save us and transform us, but would put his spirit within us and grant us a new life and supercharge us by his spirit to go out into a hostile world that hates God, hates you, and to be able to overcome and proclaim his word and see other people come to faith and come to know our God. God doesn't save us for us. We're not saved for our own glory. We're not saved just to have fun. We're saved for his glory. We're saved for him. What's the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our purpose uh, to be uh, believers is to ultimately glorify God with every jot and tittle of our lives. In Jeremiah 22, 5, he says, But you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, saith the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. And obviously we know that they were eventually, Israel was taken to Babylonian captivity. And obviously Jeremiah had witnessed, witnessed all this come to pass. Question, how does this cataclysmic event in Bible history have anything to do with us today? It was said that the two greatest turning points in history were the book of Acts and the Great Reformation. And we know the fight started much earlier than the Reformation and much earlier than even the book of Acts. We know it started in the garden. The antagonism come against Satan and the seed. It's been there right from the beginning. Today we need a greater Reformation. I'd like to quickly examine four areas that may need the hammer of God, the death blow upon our lives, our hearts, our homes, our church, and the world. Let's look at four different areas pertaining to our lives that just may need the hammer of God. They just may need a death blow and revival to our lives. First of all, we need to understand one thing. Many of us need the pounding of that death warrant upon our hearts. And that's where we got to begin this morning is to really examine our hearts to see where we truly stand before God. Because if, 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 if we're not, okay, first of all, we understand the differences between a true convert and a false convert. But we do know that a true convert, someone who truly is born again, can fall into times of sleep that need to be revived. We know that the church throughout history has fallen into a sleep. doesn't mean that they had lost their salvation or they weren't born again. It's just that uh, there are seasons in which God needs to blow upon his people and awaken us and recharge us to get into the battle. And I believe this is the, this is the area that we need to deal with. It's our own, our own hearts. We need to ask God to bring down the hammer upon the idols that still remain in our hearts. Do you have any idols in your hearts this morning? Is there anything that you have? Obviously, don't, don't shout them out. Or, but is there anything in the secret recesses of your heart this morning that you have not let go of? Are there idols in your life this morning that you need to repent of that are keeping you not only from drawing closer to Christ, to be, but, be, but to be utilized and used by Christ in ways that you've never been used before. In Matthew 15, 18 through 19, Jesus said that those things which proceed out of the mouth 
come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. Charles Spurgeon once said, Doth a man love his Lord who would be willing to see Jesus wearing a crown of thorns while for himself he craves a chaplet of laurel? Shall Jesus ascend to the throne by the cross and do we expect to be carried there on the shoulders of applauding crowds? Be not so vain in your imagination. Count you the cost. And if you're not willing to bear Christ's cross, go away to your farm and your merchandise and make the most of them. Only let me whisper this in your ear. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? It's serious business when, when God deals with us on that level to, to examine our hearts. The psalmist said in, in 26 verse 2, he said, Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart. Examine my mind. Psalm 139, he cries out, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. Is this our prayer this morning? Because this is where it all begins. It begins with the church. The church isn't just some building. It's the people. It's you individually. It's you personally. And where are you with the Lord? Many of you say, well, listen, I'm not into, you know, I'm not doing this and this and this, but yet you may have, have attitudinal sins. You may, you may be envious. You may be jealous. You may be someone who gossips. You may be someone who slanders. You may be a very prideful person. You may not have murdered anybody. You may not be committing adultery. You may not be looking at porn, but you may be a very prideful, stubborn person. And in the eyes of the Lord, it's a great sin and things we need to deal with. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. It all begins first and foremost with your relationship with God, your own heart, not your neighbors, but you yourself. Where are you today? Where are you today with your relationship with God? I mean, there are so many things out there begging for our attention and our worship, right? Everywhere you turn, it's there. Everything is nagging for our attention. And this is why Paul said that I am crucified to the world, but he took another step and he said that the world is crucified to me. What did he mean by that? He would say, not only am I cut off from the world, but because I'm cut off from the world and my life is a certain way of following Christ, that I carry the stench of death and the world wants nothing to do with me. It goes both ways. Because when you cut yourself off from the world and you are now living fully and devoted to Christ, trust me, the world won't want anything to do with you either. Next point is in our homes. Our homes. This is extremely important because these are major qualifiers for ministry. I mean, the Lord takes very seriously our personal lives that go on in our homes, the way we live our lives. So much so that he uses these for qualifiers for eldership and leadership within the church. This is how important it is. 
for God to have these things laid out. But I would say this before you think you can escape having to uh, look at these things for yourself. These actually are not only just for elders, but these are for the people of God. These are for all of us to consider. 1 Timothy 3, 4 says, One that ruleth, ruleth, is, ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Very specific there. But I don't have too much time to really dig into this. This may be for another day. But this idea that God puts here, he puts rules in here as a ruler. Almost in the sense that you would see almost a... <clears throat> if you think of rulers, you think of kingdoms. You think of kings. You think of leaders. In such a sense that we get this idea that the nature of a home is where the father of that home is commanded by God to rule that home. And we all know that this idea and picture and illustration of a ruler gives an image of war. And when you're within this context of rulership, within the confines of your own home, it takes on this, almost takes on this attitude. And within the context of this battle, this ruler, as you would, going to war, you're not going in there as a physical war with your family. But there is spiritual warfare that happens there. But also there is sanctification that God has prescribed through a family, through the means of children, through the means of marriage, to shape us and mold us more into the image of God. The greatest sanctifiers in your life is your wife and your children. The greatest sanctifiers in your life is your husband and your children. God has placed these divinely within these positions in the home for the purpose of glorifying himself by us experiencing the changes that come through having children, and operating in a rulership over a home. Does that make any sense? Ephesians 5.22 gives commands to wives to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I love the disclaimer that's in there so you don't feel like it's just some, you know, some um, idea of just tyranny. Wives, submit to your husbands as if you are submitting to Christ himself. And then it goes on to say, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. His body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Not just some things, but everything. See, we live in an egalitarian culture. We live in a culture that is so feminized. Males, it's disgusting. It's gotten so bad right now in our nation anyway that it's... So bad that even our view of headship is so tainted and perverted by egalitarianism in this country that we don't even recognize it anymore. There's such an attitude and disgruntled behavior of the woman against the man or the wife against the husband. It's almost become to the point where we've taken it on as being normal. But there is a prescription in the scriptures that tell us not to be tyrants, okay, but there is a way in which God commands us to live. There is an order to things. Does that make sense? There's an order to things, especially in your home. And we're to operate in those orders. And those orders get backwards and out of place. Everything goes haywire. Ephesians says, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives. 
And does God give us an illustration of what that looks like? He does. He says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, what's the point of all this? Is this just so we can look good and, and just have a happy marriage and just be nice to everybody and get along? No, ultimately, this is about for the glory of Christ. All these commands here are not just for us to have a happy life. Even though there's happiness and joy within the context of living like this because it's pleasing to God and God benefits us, benefits our marriage, benefits our our, our rearing of our children blesses our home, but the reality, all these things are put into place for the primary reason is to transform us more into the image of Christ. This is the major reason that these things are here. These aren't just good ideas from God. Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Children. Here's one for you. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be, what, bitter against them. Some of you guys, and you probably wouldn't admit this, but if you be honest, probably the number one sin that we commit is bitterness against our wives, right? None of you guys go through that? Just me? But it's in the word of God for that very reason because, because Paul knew that. I mean, they knew that there was this situation where we would be bitter. If we're not careful, if we're not living, if we're not loving, if we're not laying our lives down as God has commanded us for our wives in that love, that perfect love that only Christ can give us, then what happens, the opposite end of that, is that we become bitter and cynical and angry and very, very sinful. 1 Peter 4, 9-10 says, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one of us has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. All these things fall into context of, of who we are becoming and testifying of the power of the gospel in our lives. Being hospitable, being hospitable is this. You're bringing other people into your life. You're bringing other people into your home so they can see the work that God has done through the sanctifying power of having a family present. You have your children. What They can come in and see that. And then they can see what it has accomplished. You can't hide from people. Bring them into your home. You can't hide. You can't put on an act. You can't perform well and just make everybody think that your life is all peachy and perfect until they come into your home and they see what your life is really like. That's why it's so important. And that's why all these other commandments are there because there is that point to where the hospitality comes in where people come into your home and they're able to see what God has accomplished and that you are a good testimony to Christ. You're not perfect by any means. I mean, your families can be falling apart. That doesn't mean that you're disqualified. That means God is in process of changing you more in the image of his son. And we must be willing to let other people see those things. See who we really are. Because this way, it exposes the truth. Next one would be in our church. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word. He doesn't say, preach the best-selling book at the Christian bookstore. Is saying, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, extort with a long suffering and doctrine. You ever hear people say, we don't need theology, we just need Christ. We don't need doctrine, we just need Jesus. 
Well, our theology and doctrine defines the Jesus that we worship and serve and follow. So it's extremely important that we understood. Jeremiah understood. Jeremiah was sola scriptura. He preached the word of God. He trusted in the word of God. He knew God and was known by God and knew the only hammer that could shatter things to pieces, shatter the adversaries, was the word of God. Jonathan Edwards believed that God had ignited the Great Awakening largely through five particular sermons. The first one was justification by faith alone. This was seedbed, he said, that started the Great Awakening. These five messages. The first one was to understand justification by faith alone. This was the starting point. The second one was Ruth's resolution. What does it mean by that? The firmness of resolving never to leave God's people. Under no condition are we to leave. We're to be resolute. The next one was pressing into the kingdom. The next one was the justice of God and the damnation of sinners. And the last one was the excellency of Christ. If you look at these sermons, we're not going to dive into, but you can see that there was a, uh, a, a plan to how these things laid out and how he dealt with really the Christian life. Jeremiah came to an apex of his convictions and came upon his people with a thundering message within the temple. And it was about this time uh, in the book of Jeremiah, when you reach chapter 7, he had come to the point where he's pretty much had dialed in the message that he was preaching. He was in the temple at this time when he preached this message. And while he was in the temple at this time, on the outside of the temple was all kinds of false worship going on. And he says this, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, and shed innocent blood, in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. But behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say that we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Jeremiah at one point cried out, he said, but his word, his word, his word is in my heart like a burning fire. Shut up in my bones and I was weary of holding it back and I could not. Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? The last one is in the, into the world. Jesus said that the field is the world. Remember this. Our hearts, our homes, our church, and the world around us. We're not to stop being a light to the world. The new covenant blessing of Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah just wasn't a doom and gloomer. 
He proclaimed the new covenant. You violated the covenant. You've broken God's covenant. The wrath of God is coming. The judgment of God is falling upon this nation. You will go into exile. You will go into captivity. You will suffer for your sins against God. But remember, God is a merciful God. Because he deals with the covenant that's come in the new covenant. Where God will come and change his people. That Christ will come and save his people to bear the full weight of God's wrath upon the cross and rise again three days days later and secure a people to himself. In John 4, 36, Jesus said, Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Remember the duality to Jeremiah's message. It wasn't just to his own people. It wasn't just to the priest. But it was to the surrounding nations as well. He had a dual ministry. One was to his own people. You could say the church to the professing people of God. And the other one was to the surrounding world around him. Jesus said in Mark 1.38, Let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may also preach there. For this is why I came. This is why I came, to preach the word. Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God into salvation to everyone, everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. J.C. Ryle says, When God takes a work in hand, Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop it. So in conclusion, a couple things to remember. We must ask God to bring down, I mean, I know it sounds rough, but we must ask God to obliterate and turn our idols to powder. We must ask him to come and regain a foothold in our homes again. And just so you know, I'm speaking to myself as well up here. Okay? These are things that are very convicting to my own heart, things that I need to work on. Ask God to bring the Spirit back into our homes. And that was one of the major things that started the Great Awakening was people began to do family devotions again, began to gather around the Word of God, and God was pleased. So much shows, so much so that he started a fire, explosion. Our homes need to be sanctified and set apart for the Lord, and, and, and have an understanding, a correct understanding of what what a, what the home is there for, and why God has placed it there, and what He does through it. And then our church, so we're never never going to stop being who we are as a church. We're always going to preach the word. We're always going to gather on the Lord's day. We're always going to fellowship, take communion, and baptize. We're not going to sell out to a bunch of stupid lies and be pushed around by the government. Yes, we'll obey those things which God has ordained, absolutely. We're not sitting there looking for a fight by any means, but anytime anybody tells us to do something that's not in accordance with the Word of God, we say no. God trumps all that. The last thing is the world. We want to make sure that we are out in the world. Wherever you may, you may be out with Ivan on Friday night, or you may be 
in the grocery store on Monday morning. We've got to remember that wherever we are, we've got to be ready with the Word of God. Doesn't we've got to be obnoxious, but we've got to be ready. We need to testify the reality that we're truly of God and understand that we have the only remedy for others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the life and ministry of Jeremiah. Lord, let us have a sober understanding of this reality that this nation is certainly under the judgment of God. How can we have murdered almost 70 million babies and think that we're okay? How can we accommodate the things that go on in this world and somehow think you're okay with that? Lord, help us to rise up, not only in the confrontation of our own hearts, but to confront these idols of the world, these idols set out for destruction. Let us stand bold like Luther did on that day, where his entire nation stood and was weighed in the balance, and he didn't move. He didn't move. Lord, be glorified with the preaching of your word today. Bless the saints, Lord. Bless the saints as they as we leave and as we fellowship and spend time together. Lord God, let it be uh, let it be honoring and glorifying to your name. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Brother Jeff, for that wonderful message from the Lord and